was heavy on my mind Then I look at you And the world's alright with me Just one look at you And I know it's gonna be A lovely Welcome to WNNHHFM's 103.5 Just In Time Conversations. I'm your host, Justin Farmer, inviting you to be in community with us in conversations about ideas that matter with people making a difference. Today, our guest is Paul Bass, executive, nonprofit, uh, director, uh, reporter, and founding editor, uh, Thank you for being on the show with us. Uh, I guess you're the second person who makes us tick. Makes what? Makes us tick. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Good morning, Justin. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I, I am. I'm so excited. So I, you know, you are no longer the executive director, uh, but you've stepped back. So. What has that been like over the last couple of months? Has it's it felt been nice. Different? So the independent is a, and WNHH are part of something called the Online Journalism Project. Mm. That's a nonprofit. I'm still the executive director of that. Mm. For the last 17 years since we started, I was the editor of the New Haven Independent, which is the daily news site. Starting in October, though we didn't tell anyone until November, um, we switched that around, and Tom Breen stepped in to become mm. the editor, and I've gone back to full-time reporting. And it's been great. I mean, uh, I love it. I love being a reporter. That's why I went into business. And I really enjoyed editing as well and working with our wonderful reporters. But, you know, it's time after 17 years to have nice weekends back. And to be honest, um, the, pay, the site needed a younger editor, a new editor. He's not a kid. He's, young. he's in his 30s, and he's done this quite a while, and he has quite a lot of experience and great leadership. He had already been a leader of the organization. But it was really, we really need some fresh air in there fresh direction and and also i i love reporting so it's kind of energized me since october i've been um i just love reporting all day that's what i love to do and uh so it's been a win-win I, this morning do you know who larry stewart is no he's been a, a person kind of making things happen in new haven for about 40 50 years he's my age i'm in my 60s and he's now he like he was project matter for a lot of stuff at the housing authority over the years short street south he He's now working Mary Wade, and he, he's a busy guy. You know, he, he gets hired because of his experience to help people finish out construction projects, but he's not the boss, and he hasn't been in charge stuff for a long time, and he and I were talking about that today, about you know, how he, he's a big fan of Tom Breen, and he was talking about how wonderful it is that this younger person stepped in, and we talked about how so many people our age hate to give up the reins, <laughs> yeah. but we really need to. I mean, now you have extremes like Joe Biden and Donald Trump, but you have that everywhere, right? Diane Feinstein? Yeah. I mean, well, that's a little sad because that's like she needs an intervention because she's not in reality at the moment. But people are in reality. You know, it's like, and I can understand it. You kind of feel like, you know, you're not dead yet, right? And yeah. in fact is, you know, people our age have more to contribute than we used to because we're living healthier, longer lives thanks to advances in medicine if we make it over the hump. And we can contribute without being in places we no longer should be. Mm-hmm. 
And I'm, you know, I see that in politics all the time. Like I love that you had a change in Hamden. I love that's why I got excited as a reporter, you know, meeting you when you got involved in politics. I'm not joking. You know, it, it, the younger people you brought into Hamden politics, that's fantastic. With new perspective, a new idea of what's possible. And um so I love being a reporter. I've always loved being a reporter, and I was still a reporter when I was editing the independent, but I was doing, you know, five other things and now I'm just doing one or two other things and it's all good. Out of curiosity you you know I, I I don't see as much mentorship uh in politics and so as a reporter right um you know you've made a whole entire organization right you've worked as a reporter at other publications and you know had your own publication and so what do you feel the role of mentorship is in media uh, I think mentorship is essential. I had incredible mentors, Justin. Hey. When I was in high school, I wrote for my, I was in White Plains, New York. I came to New Haven in 78. Before that, I was in White Plains, New York, and I just walked into the local daily paper as Gannett owned. And, <laughs> wow. they, and they, they were just so sweet to me. They threw me out on articles. I thought it was the most incredible thing in the world. And, you know, I, I, I didn't have, a, I couldn't really grow a beard or anything yet when I was 17, 18. So I'd go to these places and say, I'm Paul Bass with a reporter's patch. And someone would look at me and just, politicians just start cracking up. Yeah, right. Like this little kid's coming to interview it. But the, uh, I looked like Howdy Doody. That's what the editor called me. <laughs> but they let me do it, you know, and they mentored me to this day. This guy I just reconnected with after 45 years. Hey. There was an editor there named Tom Pika who took me aside and just showed me how to do everything. Like he said, here's how you hold a notebook. Here's how you look someone in the eye when you're talking to him. Here's how you be honest and straightforward so they trust you. Here's how you ask questions so you don't leave anything out where you step back and don't have a list of questions, but listen and try in your mind to play how a story unfolds. That was mentorship. And that when I went to New Haven, I started working other places. I used to call him for the first bunch of years. Like I was editing somewhere, an old independent newspaper, and I'd call him and I'd say, Tom, I'm trying to figure out what we should do with the lead in this and an ethical question. And that mentorship continued. And I had a great editor's Everywhere I went, actually, to this mm -hmm. day. When I was in college, a writer named John Hersey taught me and mentored me and stayed in touch. You know, like he cared what happened to me and gave me advice when I needed it. And at, at the New Haven Advocate, I had some, you know, two terrific editors, Andy Holding and Josh Mamis, who mm -hmm. they really guided me. And they cared not just that you do your job well that day, but that um, you get more skills. And then you watch them, too. The other part of mentorship is watching the person. So I just watched people who were good at editing, at reporting, so that um that helped me be better i uh you probably know this bet you you're the money guy so you probably know <laughs> this better than than others uh how important local media is and you know it was a couple of weeks ago maybe a week ago i was watching the uh uh local paper that first broke the story about uh uh what's his name uh george santos yeah i'm just like i'm like which name is he going with again <laughs> but how they broke this story and how around them probably a half a dozen papers have closed in the same region and and, and how important they felt about breaking the stories and how important local media was not only for the national context but also for the community and so how do you hold that reverence at the same time as trying to keep everything afloat? Yeah, I think those are a good question. I think they're combined. So to exist financially, the media has to serve a need. Mm -hmm. And for much of my lifetime, not as much as yours, 
print newspapers really felt it filled the need for what's the best way to sell a concert ticket or a washing machine or a house, <laughs> right? That's no longer true because of the internet and print newspaper companies have gotten so greedy because they didn't have competition to do that. They didn't invest in their communities to compete with anything back and they had these obscene profit margins of 30% in that papers. And when they no longer could fool people into thinking they're the best way to advertise something, people found out they didn't have value anymore because they had disinvested in reporting. When I came to New Haven, Justin, we had two daily print papers. Wow. Both, they were owned by the same company. We used to like share the desks, the morning and afternoon paper. And today, the one paper that's left that bought by greedy chains that went bankrupt twice and fueled by junk bonds, they have maybe a quarter of the reporters who were at one of those papers. There were five radio stations that had newsrooms in New Haven, they're now zero. There was a weekly alternative newspaper that was vibrant that now is out of business because it was bought by a greedy change who didn't really care about the mission. But more importantly, instead of my being all ideological about it, there needed to be a, a pivot in how you paid for this work that was important and what was important about it. And the pivot was a good one, um, which is partly that it's now paid for people who care about what it is. So if, if, you know, the NPR model of nonprofit news, that's what the independence started 17 years ago. We were one of the first two in the country that had a serious professional nonprofit newsroom for local or state news. And the idea was that those other ones were dying because they weren't fulfilling their mission, which was to pretend they were the best way to sell commodities rather than give you news that you care about and connect with community. So it turned out that the NPR model was doing pretty well yeah. because people cared about what happened in their community and you might not get as 30% profit, you're not going to have, you know, drowning in money and feeling self-important like the floor of the state, but you can do good reporting supported by that. Today, Justin, there are over 400 such sites in the country. That's where the growth has been. Wow. It's been all in the nonprofit, public interest, online media. And it's a good thing. It's a good story. So my answer is you still have to do the hard work of raising the money and you can't always do it easily as different places. But not only is I think that's a good story that nonprofit media, because everyone thinks the good old days when you had those more papers and everything, but you would have hated the local papers in Connecticut because they were run by right-wing, wealthy local people who just drowned out. They would never quote a Justin Farmer unless they wanted to write an editorial about what a menace he was to society. I'm serious. The Reds used to be owned by this right-wing family. It was so greedy and nasty. And their editorials, when John Lennon got shot, they said, this is an argument against gun control. They said, what are gay... They actually said, editorial... Why are gay people complaining they want, they can get mortgages? What is their other problem? When they were sold to a chain, the new editor told me he found a drawer with hundreds of letters to the editor that he'd never published because they were from liberals questioning wow. what they do. But he kept them because he was kind of like a weirdo. Like my wife once read the editor and he wrote back an argument about you people who like welfare. But she said, I wasn't asking for a letter back. I just want you to run the letter, the paper. And so there wasn't this golden age. There wasn't this golden age in the late 1900s, early 20th century of when we had all these reporters who were all on top of things. The individual reporters were great, but these were greedy, nefarious, right-wing or corporate uh, centrist publications that cared only about money and took wealth out of communities. So this is, in my opinion, a golden age that we're still developing of nonprofit grassroots, locally rooted media, supplemented by other ways people get information that they used to get that I would consider news. So Justin, (laughs) you have followers. Did you see AOC when... um, when the House votes were going on for a speaker, she, I, I watched this to see what it was like. She had, 
I think hundreds of thousands of people watching her on Instagram. And she was, I don't know if you saw, she was slowly walking through the process. It actually was really interesting. It's like she was a reporter. She actually didn't give her opinion. And all these people writing in, I didn't understand how those votes work. Mm-hmm. And that's media. And yes, you know, some come from left, right, center, and that's cool. An intelligent person, it was always true. They just lied about it before and pretended there was this thing called corporate censorship, regional media was really reinforcing all the um, assumptions of capitalism and warmongering so that we could be profitable and call that non, non-opinion. And, and Objective. <laughs> yeah, right, objective. And, and so now even like the mayor, if you don't like the mayor, you're still getting great information from mayor and never got directly. When there's a storm, Kurt Lang used to be at the storm and tell you what was there. Justin Elliker has the list of people signed up, tens of thousands of people who immediately get information about garbage pickup or where it's safe to go out in the street or, or where should they should park. That's information, too, that those print papers used to give late. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's a new informational ecosystem that it's good that you can't go to just one place for all your news because that was a monopoly that kept out other points of view in the interest of corporate capital. And instead, you have this great ecosystem that gives all of us a chance to have the voice and that when you have like professional quote unquote news gathering, which is what the independent tries to do, you can kind of trust it, whether you, you like the story or not, you trust that we're going out trying to find out something while you're busy at work. You got someone like Tom Breen or Nora Grace Flood or Lori Lesby or Ryan McFadden who understands how to figure out what's going on in a meeting, get more information, ask for a document, find out what it means, ask someone what it means if you don't know. That's great work. That's important work that needs to be done. That's what we guess we call journalism. And that's a crucial part of starting the conversation and that can be funded, nonprofit, public interest, and do better work. It's supplemented. I consider you a media outlet. You have a lot of followers, not just with the show, and you go on Instagram, and that's valuable. That's part of the news ecosystem. And the same with Margie Bonadies on the right. You know, even though she fled to North Brantford to go with her favorite, you know, fellow survivalist. But, but <laughs> we need it all, and it's more democracy and it's more information. Y'all are listening to Just in Time Conversations on WNHHFM one hundred three point five. I'm your host, Justin Farmer, with our guest today, Paul Bass, um, talking about uh, news media, um, I, I guess out of what you just shared, right, there, there's this narrative, right, uh, and I, I haven't really landed on an opinion myself, right, but there's this <clears throat> narrative of the Walter Cronkite uh, era of news, right, and everybody used to listen to the same people. And there was a baseline of, you know, uh, of facts that everyone could share. Yeah. And now today, everyone can choose their media, right? They can choose their personality. What to believe about stone elections. How, how much do you feel that is a real thing? And how it much is a real concern mm-hmm. because I, my thinking has evolved on this. Because mm. I think it was terrible that you had three networks that everybody wants, and they all had the same assumptions about capitalism and foreign intervention and <laughs> what, what voices were, were okay to be heard. And I do think that was a problem. I do agree it's kind of good when you can agree on some basic facts, like they were still professionals, so they wouldn't have spread this idea. Like you wouldn't have had Fox News reaching so many people. But I guess I would argue that we got to work our way through it, that mm. rather than surrendering to corporate jingoistic quote-unquote objectivity that did have value because these were professionals and Walter Cronkite was responsible that we have to work our way through the dangers of a democratic information sphere we have to become media literate and I have faith in people that kind of know 
Fact. People smoke us out the independent. Like, we don't do it on purpose, but we might have, like, a lefty bias to something that a conservative reader will point out. You know, look at this document. You guys weren't listening to this. And they'd be right. You know, it's <laughs> like, or I, I think there's no, in my, in the end, I think there's no substitute to having an informed, web literate, re, news, news consuming public and participating public. That there's so much better promise in the new way that lets so many voices be heard, so many people hold people accountable. There's so many dangers because of misinformation and how tech companies have business models that amplify divisiveness and fakery and conspiracies in order to make money. But we got to work through it because one way to think about it is a national inquirer. So back before the internet, I know it's a long time ago, so people read the New York Times and we thought those were facts. They had their biases, but they were facts. Right? <laughs> and so now in those days, maybe a couple hundred thousand, two hundred thousand people read the New York Times. Maybe 10 or 20 times many people read the National Enquirer that they picked up at the supermarket that made up stories are my favorite, the Weekly World News, which was kind of like a version of the Onion downscale back in those days. So many more people read the conspiracy nonsense, but that doesn't mean they acted on it. Mm. Yeah, they voted for Ronald Reagan and kind of believed some nonsense, but they, I would argue that one-tenth or one-twentieth of circulation might have more power if it's good material and that good information is powerful. So now it's just put everything on steroids. Today, 10 million people read the New York Times. And while we might hate some of the biases, it's really good information. <laughs> and 10 times as many people read stuff that's like the National Enquirer. They read, you know, Fox News and, and uh, One America and really nutty sites, QAnon. So it's always been a 10 to 1 ratio, but I would argue that our one-tenth is more powerful. That We just get out there and stop complaining and just report the news and do our best and fix our mistakes we don't have to have as many clicks because not everybody does everything with that click. You're sitting mindlessly in front of your screen and I do it like everybody else at night and then I write dumb emails I shouldn't have written because I'm too tired. <laughs> and, but I'm not doing with the information the same way that if I read something that's really powerful about Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act or if I'm reading something about taxation or criminal justice, if one-tenth of my time is spent on that, I'm going to have 10 times as much I'm doing with that as a democratic actor in the civic society. Mm. so I think you're correct and it was a good question about what we've lost with not having uniformity of thought in a corporate controlled media universe I think that while it created new challenges it created so many opportunities that I'm going to be optimistic the way you're a very optimistic person in my opinion you went to every door when you were young and you got elected and convinced people who didn't know why you're wearing these headphones who you are you just told them everybody loved you and you got into government and you made things better similarly I think yeah we got to fight against the evil Fox Newses and One Americas and QAnons and Trumps. But you can do it. And it's better than not trying and just surrendering to bland corporate centrism and right-wingism. No, no, I, I appreciate that. And I, I, I think that's where I land, although I always worry about how do you kind of create a common narrative around contemporary events that's hard because you have right look at brazil right now where it's just like or look at george floyd (laughs) we had a common narrative for seven seconds and when we had that to your point when we had that common narrative for seven seconds all of america pretty much conservative liberal center white black poor rich everyone was outraged at what happened to george floyd everybody decided we got to do something about racial injustice and criminal justice it lasted seven minutes, and then, to your point, Fox News and the others created a counter-narrative that was nonsense that played into prejudice. It was divisive and actually had incredible 
pushback. <laughs> so yeah, there's a challenge. I don't know. I think we're not going to have the common narrative back. I'm sorry. No, no, I. But I, we got to do our best, given with the opportunities that open up with that. I, I, I wish we could believe in facts together. I agree. I, I, I think there will be an equilibrium at some point. I, I think so too, because I think. One thing we try to do with the independent, even though we have our own biases, is to really get good information. Mm -hmm. And we do have readers who are more diverse ideologically and racially than any place I ever worked who actually engage with those and fact check. And I do think it can happen. I think it is happening in New Haven. I think people do have more information about zoning and criminal justice and other issues than they used to have. And I think the big challenge in that when you're talking about equilibrium is going to come with deep fakes. So now within a year or two, everything we see is going to be a lie. We're going to have videos where it looks like Obama's saying something or Biden or Trump that they're not saying because you can put another voice in. It looks so realistic. You're going to have photos that look like Justin or another council, but something really evil in some place you've never been to in your whole life. We are going to have to work through that. I do believe we can reach the equilibrium because I don't think people are stupid. We can be lured into acting in ways that aren't the smartest ways, like we all act like idiots sometimes. I think we are gonna, we're going to have a big challenge for a few years with these deep fakes, but I think we're going to work through it, and I think that if we all do our work, whether it's people work, running for the uh, Legislative Council or people doing local journalism, we just got to stay, um, stay in the game, stay at, work at the grassroots level to make that happen. You know, I, 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 uh, uh, I definitely have a bias in, in that sense. I, uh, I think one of the questions I always want to ask, I... Uh, as someone who's usually on the other side, right, uh, of, of getting interviewed, um, I think about our reporters, right? And so oftentimes they're setting the narrative, right, or unpacking a story. But, you know, I didn't necessarily hear the narrative that, you know, reporters were frontline workers, right? I didn't necessarily hear people laud or praise the work that's done. And as I see young professionals, right, um, where people I've leveled up with, right, in a way where as I was figuring out and bumping into things, right, they're figuring out how to do journalism and seeing kind of the constraints of other media uh, uh, models, right, where people have to report seven interesting stories a week, right? People have crazy deadlines, right? How have you as a reporter throughout the years in different organizations, right? I, I think the new age term we use is self-care. But what what has Paul Bass done to ground himself? I think it's important to take time when you're not working. Hey. That's one reason I did this job switch. 17 years of like, I always have Sabbath, 25 hours, Friday night, Saturday, but I'm slammed. I'm just recovering and then starting over. Can I disagree respectfully with part of your take on this? Yep, definitely. Always. <laughs> I think we in the media are getting too self-congratulatory. Mm. That when Trump started almost blowing up America, there was so much love showered on us for doing what we do because we're protecting democracy. And we got, we're not rolling in money. We can't, you're not going to get rich being a reporter, but we got stabler finances because of that. Mm. And I think because this nonprofit model that I like, we have to raise the money. We get into too much every day proclaiming how we're saving democracy and we're so important and what we do is so valuable. And it is valuable. It's not more valuable than a legislator or a teacher or a firefighter or a legal aid lawyer or a police officer. Like, it's not more valuable. We have our own side. It's important. I think we got a little self-important. 
mm-hmm. and that we speak so much about how important we're doing is how hard it is and all we have to write a story every day. Big deal. I was a story. I used to write three stories a day. I mean, that's how you grow up. I said, what's what the job is? It's like, I'm going to hammer only one nail into this building today or I'm only going to. And I think that we got so self-important about how we're saving democracy that a lot of young reporters are, and a lot of the money is flowing to places that have all these self-gradulatory stories that they feel are changing everything by taking the big picture and the deep dive, which are good to do sometimes. Mm-hmm. But that what you really need to do is build it brick by brick every day by doing your job, just doing your job. Mm-hmm. And that that's like Tom Breen just does his job. He's there like three, five stories a day. And he found out just by doing his job that we had a real eviction problem and he got all the perspectives and built it up. He found out by just doing his job, looking at real estate listings, very unglamorous and tracing where the mortgages were coming from. He found out that these shady people were really moving a lot of money around that wasn't to our benefit and using a business model was very questionable. He found out that the way we're taxing people benefits the rich at the expense of the working class in a way that was so powerful that wasn't a self-congratulatory write no stories for four months and get yourself care because you're getting then. I know I'm sounding like a crassy old guy. <laughs> and then you're going to like do your one big piece that five people will read. It'll be the people already agree with you and it's not going to do anything. I think journalism is a really important profession. and It's going out there and doing the job every day and not thinking you're more important than the other people. You know everything. Mm. And just, you know, do the job and go home and have a break. And the uh, corporations want to have you on call all the time. And I sometimes did that as a boss and I think it was really wrong where I wanted to be able to call people at all different times and have their phone on. And now it's like, oh, good. I wanted to reach them. I couldn't reach them. You know, like, you're right. They need to be off. Human beings aren't robots and we aren't slave labor but when you work and work don't i think we've been overselling in, in this latest period and partly because of the new model where you have to raise money and write an email every day about how great it is that you cover the story and how it's going to change everything and and then you're going to give us some money rather just do the job and like get the facts let's work them out together see what the issues are let's all talk about it now i i, I sometimes the guardian i always appreciate at the end of an article, the uh, creative pitch uh, asking for money. Right? Oh, that's fair. <laughs> no, that's fair because I think people should pay for journalism. Like I pay for, you know, Punchbowl and, and places like CT News Junkie because I want them to be there. Hey. And I think it's fine at the end of the article to do that. I'm just, I'm, I don't like the marketing. It's to a fault. The independent would have more money. Sites like ours, there's some of them have three times, four times as much money we have. They don't write any more articles. They pay for a lot of people to do marketing pitches and get all the people who fund and don't really know a place that are now spending all the money of this kind of journalism to save America into this model what looks to them like the important journalism. It does matter, but I don't think it's a substitute for just at the grassroots, beating the bushes and writing your stories every day. Okay. Well, no, I, I appreciate that. I hate that the self-promotion <laughs> to a fault because you got to do some of it. NPR, you know, makes an art form out of it. Uh, so no And also as, a, as a reporter, you're so skeptical. So every time I'm going to make a statement, look how great we did or how important that was, I say you're full of shit. I mean, like, because you say that if a politician says it, except for Justin, and you say <laughs> it, you say it if, if a musician's talking about himself, how important he was. Like, even, it's just your instinct. You're supposed to be as a reporter to say, wait a second, is that true? So then we're trying to promote ourselves. I'm instantly tearing it down. You know, like, it's five people agreed with some story you did that you could have written a whole bunch of other good information people could have used. No, I think that's part of the love of it, right? Um, and... and, and if you love an institution, right? Like you can't necessarily be, everyone can't be a true believer, right? Because if everyone's a true believer, you can't build and edify. Um, as an institution, right? Um, I love that y'all, right? I love when y'all highlight people who do the the grammar checks, right? And oh, the like, typo catchers, yeah, we love them, <laughs> yeah. Um, 
And so I guess to you, right? Like, how do you, how, what does the institution of the independent look like, right? Or what would you hope it to look like now that you're? That's a really good question because I've always thought about that. So for a long, when I started the independent, I thought not all the media disappeared yet. I kind of thought like it'll be supplement. There's this new stuff called blogs. Let's add some journalism to it. I didn't want to go back to this court. I was at work in a newsroom that it used to be alternative for by a big corporation, nice people who were really boring. And I would go back there and I was on a book writing leave about the book about the black Panthers. I didn't want to go back and I found these blogs and I felt very snobby. Like this is cool. They're doing all this multimedia in real time and readers are going back, but they're not reporters in their pajamas. So we'll do news. And, and, uh, and so my vision, the independent was I'll write some stories and then I'll just link to the other stories there. And I'll supplement it. Then pretty soon the other papers card cutting everybody and people said, we want you guys to do the news. And I used to sit in the offices of city of workers and say, here's how you can read that story I just wrote. People are actually reading news now on their computers, not just in paper. And so I thought, you know, I'll do this as long as I can raise some money because how the hell is I going to get the money is nonprofit, right? I went nonprofit because there was like, you don't rob a bank if there's no money in it, right? I wasn't robbing. I was like saying thank you, please, in the notes. But... <laughs> But there was no money for for profit. I saw that as a race to the bottom. So you have to do really junky journalism to just, you know, try to mm-hmm. build up scale and not invest in. So I said, let's go nonprofit. That's where the money will be. So it was enough money to publish, but I didn't think it was going to be an institution. Mm. I thought, and a lot actually, when, after we started, hundreds started that didn't last, but hundreds did last. A lot of people used to call us for advice and stuff like that. And you could tell right away some of them were going to last because they don't understand the money you need to raise. So then... We started growing because people wanted some more news and I was able to raise a little more money. But it was always like, I'm always scrambling. People here don't make tons of money and like, you know, you don't know, you know, year after year. So I finally got to a point where I could always guarantee people we have their money for the year and then I'll try to raise it for the next year. And then I decided, well, when I get too tired, I'll stop doing it. And there were one or two times, like when key people left to move on, I thought maybe I'll shut down the independence, no big deal. You know, it's like, then something else will pop up. And then I thought about that again and then um, there was people really to kind of value this as an institution. And we don't have an endowment, so we, don't, we can't guarantee we'll be around. But we've gotten to the point where I know I'm not going to be laying people off. Like, I'm not going to be able to hire tons of people. But I'm, I, the people got the jobs. And, like, they're probably going to have jobs for a couple of years for sure. But I still got to hustle about it. And then I got a little money for, like, if there's an emergency rainy day. And then I had this fantastic people here. The guy who runs the radio station, Harry, and Tom, who hey. can run the paper. That's okay. Let's. Let's think for first time, because I said, down was not going to work. I'm not going to be able to raise the $30 million. We just aren't going to give it to me. And, and I mean, I am able to raise like, you know, $800,000 now a year, which is pretty cool. You know, I don't know if yeah. I'll still be able to. And um, so then for the first time, I thought, let's see if this can last. And I've talked to some of our funders, how it can last. We all agreed, well, there is a younger person who's really good, so he'll make it better. Let's see how that works. But you can never know what's going to happen in people's lives. You know, is someone going to then discover, you know, Zoroasterism and then go, you know, go to a commune somewhere. You never know what someone's going to do tomorrow, where they're going to find meaning, right? So I still don't know that the independence going to, I never thought it was going to be 17 years. And we're clearly got money to go for a few years. So take it day by day. I think it's okay if institutions start and fall. You don't need the 200-year-old print institutional paper that's lost any touch with reality and just has its own institutional self-interest to go. But I've thought more institutionally than I used to. And I am now spending time and thinking, how can we make the independence something that actually can go for another generation? That'd be pretty cool. <laughs> you got to change and evolve. We got the radio station we added in 2015, which is an important part. To, you know, there was no YouTube or Facebook when we started. Like Facebook <laughs> was a private little thing, but there wasn't people weren't using it. There's no video, and then we saw video was an important part. And so we're always evolving what we do on what role we play. We now go a little deeper than we used to, and don't do all the 
so we don't have the police scanner on anymore. So we want it'd be nice to think of it as a as a medium term to shortest term institution that continue. But you also have to keep reinventing it and keeping it fresh. No, no, I, I, as the uh, person who constantly is thinking about, you know, what does the next decade look like? Right, not so much for me, but what are the changes that I want to see? These days, I just think about institutions all the time, and I'm like, man, institutions are really eroded. But like, how do you? And that is important. The institutions held when Trump tried to, you know, have a coup. On the other hand, I would think, you know, Malcolm X said about no permanent friends, no permanent permanent interest. So your interest is where you want society to go. So the institutions are important. I agree with that. I'm just not of an institutional bent because I'm so skeptical of them and I hate being part of a group of having me as a member. But you know, the interest you have is like, you know, LGBT justice, racial justice, criminal justice, um, fairness, tax fairness, people having a chance for their kids to have a good life and a good education. And yes, institutions are involved there and sometimes you gotta be able to roll with how the institutional landscape evolves. Like for profit <laughs> news doesn't work anymore. Uh, you can't just be in a back room with other nice people making laws. You kind of got to be more transparent now and tell people what you're up to and take a little more time at it. And I think as long as our goal, like for vegan journalism, is to have fact-driven, analytical, committed grassroots journalism where you live, connecting with all sorts of people, different backgrounds, so we can take stuff to another place and they can have the tools and the democracy to take action. That's the vision. I'm now thinking maybe the independent can carry that lot longer than I originally thought, which I thought might be two years, three years, and <laughs> more people, like instead of one person, it can be, you know, our two editions of the radio station, but, you know, who, who really knows in five years? I, 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 as we near our time, I guess one question that I, I really wanted to ask you is, you know, are you as hopeful as you were about your first story as you are now? Yes, I'm so excited <laughs> when I meet someone who especially is not, I, I love interviewing politicians and, and business people and people who know I deal with me. I'm like, it's so exciting. I could do this thing over and shoot. You just meet some person who's like trying to make it through life and you see the beauty of people. You know, our notebook is a visa where you get to cross borders and understand people that a shy person like me would never get to talk to. And, and I am, I found those other reports too, like Mary O'Leary at the register. You're still so excited after 50 years. Just meet some friends. I was excited when you ran for office. Like just, seeing people have new ideas or just trying to make it through life and they have that beauty and 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 love in their hearts and they also deal with real life challenges and trying to figure out how things work i never ever ever get bored of that I, matter of fact I, I was trying to figure out what would i do with myself if i weren't reporting because that's <laughs> kind of what makes life interesting and gives a purpose for me well i i i, I one question that i struggle with these days is what do you do with everyone's stories, right? Um, what do you do with, with people's stories, right? Because you, as you said, they're, which is beautiful, right? You get a passport to other people's lives. Um, but you have to hold all of that, right? The trauma, the joys, the sadness, the, the inspirations. Yeah. And so how have you learned how to hold on to those stories and then what do you do with them, right? Sometimes yeah, you my role is just to let people know the stories, respectfully, the people you're interviewing, because you know you don't want to take advantage of people. Um, you want to help them tell their story in an honest way, and I think you just put it out there. And sometimes people care, sometimes they don't. Sometimes a story that no one cares about today, they will care about tomorrow. So I remember in the early 
90s at New Haven Advocate, we write about all this unethical behavior in city government. Nobody cared. Then all of a sudden, reports something made everybody care, and then they cared about all the stuff we used to write about, and they got dealt with, and now we have um, democracy fund and public financing New Haven. So people cared about the George Floyd thing when the brave woman, young woman took the video. They weren't caring. As, they're starting to care more. Black Lives Matter movement is happening, but you just got to put the stories out there with care and love and attention and professionalism. And trust in people that they're going to figure out what to do when, when they want to. You can't control it. You can't control it. People shouldn't try to control it. But you can just do your role, whether you're the lawmaker who's listening to people and, and having their concerns be heard and translated into public action when needed and finding each other or organizing political people. Well, any last words, wills, testaments? Justin Farmer, thank you so much for having a show. Thank you much for doing a show. No, well, thank you, you. You always inspire me with your positive energy and your excitement about just keep plugging on even when things get tough. Well, no, thank you, uh, Paul, for uh, connecting with us on Just In Time Conversations, WNA and HHFM 103.5. Uh, thanks again, Paul, for, for being with us. Until next time, let's continue to plant the seeds of change until we grow together.